This is NBA Sound System Live, featured on NBA.com sites around the world and archived on the NBA Sound System podcast feed, where you get your podcasts by searching NBA Sound System. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, each with the handle at NBA Sound System, or visit us at NBASoundSystem.com for more. Now, NBA Sound System Live. Yes, indeed. NBA Sound System LIV live across the NBA Global Networks. Carlin Gay, Scott Rafferty. In between games two and three of the NBA Finals, tied at one, Celtics winning game one, the Warriors winning game two. Scott, how you feeling? Series looks good. I'm I'm feeling good. It's the the series has kind of lived up to the hype so far. It's been a great first two games, even though the final score make it seem like the they weren't um, all that entertaining. I think if you're just looking at the final score, but they've been two great games, highly competitive. Um, we said last week that we think this is a series that will go at least six games. I feel pretty confident about that prediction. I think we're going to get six or seven games here. Um, and the winner, TBD. I know we're going to talk about it today. How are you doing? Can't complain. I am. I like you. I'm very happy that we have. A finals that feels like it's going to get to a game seven. If, if, if this series, I feel like needs a game seven um, without having seen the next five games. I, I, I do feel like these are the two best teams in the league. Uh, they're playing the best right now, or they were playing the best to get to this point. I'm not mad at it. I, I, I always get upset when we get to finals when the two best teams don't make it or they're not playing at their best. And I think we have the best case scenario. The only thing that would make it a tad bit better is if Robert Williams III was healthier. But the fact that he's out there and playing um, is better than, than not having him at all. So I I am extremely excited for Game 3, which comes to you on Wednesday. Game 4 coming to you on Friday. Only one game, or one day rather, in between Games 3 and 4. That's the only time I think that happens in the series if I'm not mistaken. And, I mean, the the adjustment from great games three to four will be uh, – that's what the coaches get paid for. That's, that's exactly what the coaches get paid for. But let's talk about the first two games, Scott. Um, as you mentioned, uh, by the way, we will talk about the Lakers situation. So all you Laker fans, hold your horses. We're going to finally talk about you guys in a positive light, maybe. Uh, the Utah Jazz do not have a coach right now. We'll get into that. The Hornets do not have a coach, but they could be closing in on one as well. So for the five Hornets fans that are listening, we will get to your team as well. All right. Uh, thoughts on games one and two, Scott. Where do you sit right now? Have you changed your mind at any point um, in this series? You, full disclosure, you're a Boston Celtics predictor. They would win the championship in your mind. Where do you sit now? Uh, so you got me wrong, Colin. I, I was with you on the same page as the Warriors. I Going oh. into this series, I... I to be fair, I was a little bit on the fence. Going into the series, I said my gut said Warriors, but I, I felt deep down that the Celtics were the better team. And the right. more that I thought about the series, I could kind of talk myself into the Celtics coming out on top. Right. Um, I mean, game one was a huge surprise to me, considering the the situation, the Celtics, sorry, the Warriors have been in this situation plenty of times before. They know the magnitude of the moment. And, you know, so much was made about the Celtics not having any finals experience on this roster. Um, I made a so lot I, of that. Yeah, so I, I, I think, you know, I, I kind of just expected the Warriors to come out on top in that game. Sure. They led most of the way, looked pretty comfortable. 
And then obviously the Celtics just had a fourth quarter for the ages with, you know, everyone hitting threes, taking that game over and then kind of cruising to victory down the stretch. Um, I, I thought that was a big time win. I thought, you know, Jason Tatum didn't shoot well, but dishing out 13 assists, a career high and the most ever by a player in a debut. I thought he had great control in that game. Jalen Brown played well. They made an important adjustment after the first quarter, after Steph Curry just went absolutely berserk to kind of slow him down a little bit. So I thought that was a really impressive win. And then, you know, the Warriors being a championship-tested team responded the way that they had to in game two. You know, they, they really upped the physicality. Draymond Green set the tone on that end of the court. Steph Curry has been absolutely terrific. I think, you know, he only only had 29 points in game two, but he didn't play the entire fourth quarter. And really, it was that third quarter when he took over that changed um, that entire game. So I, I think the Warriors also made some interesting adjustments, which I know we're going to get into um, to kind of level this series up. But I, I don't think, based on how the first two games have gone, my prediction has, like, I feel differently about my prediction. I still think this is going to go uh, two, seven games in that situation. I think I would give the Warriors the edge. Um, this Celtics team is just so hard to know what you're going to get on a night to night basis, right? Like, we know defensively, they're pretty much always going to bring it. Um, this team is just absolutely fantastic on the end of the court. Their versatility, the way they match up with teams and the Warriors even, um, I think you can kind of always count on them on that end of the court. Offensively, it's just a different story. Like they shut the lights out in game one. Game two, they came back down to earth. And the turnovers, I mean, we've been talking about it all postseason for them, but the the turnovers really hurt them in game two. Yeah, they did. Um, I haven't changed my mind from my prediction, which was, Warriors, but I have changed my mind in the length of the series. I think it goes seven. I said Warriors in six before the series started. I think we go to a game seven. Um, I still have the Warriors squeaking it out. Now, after watching the first two games, I think to me, it's clear that the Celtics are the better team on paper. I think things are coming easier to them when they're rolling. I think that they have more versatility in terms of the lineups that they could put out there. They also know who their best five guys are, no matter the situation, if we get a clutch game, which I assume we will at some point over the next five if we go seven. So that leads me to believe that on paper, the Celtics are the better team. Now, the finals aren't played on paper, and I put a huge amount of stock into experience coming into the series and I still lean there the Celtics to me play better as underdogs and we saw that in game one no one was expecting them to go in and win game one especially after coming off of the grueling seven game series that they played against the Miami Heat and before that the grueling seven game series that they played against the Bucks. two very physical teams no one expected them to fly across the country and steal one in Golden State the way they did because they didn't steal it they won the game so I think if most people had predicted a split, more people would say, hey, you, you probably look at this team getting a game two, but they won game one and they weren't able to sustain the same amount of energy in game two or focus at all. Uh, and that's been a common theme, as you mentioned, for them throughout the playoffs. You really don't know what Celtic team will show up, except we do. When they're underdogs, they play their best basketball. For some reason, when they are favorite, they do not play their best basketball. And they had a real opportunity to shock the world um, in game two. And I felt like 
just that intensity and that killer instinct wasn't there in that second half. It was almost like in game one, when the Warriors were going on that same third quarter run, you never saw them really break the will of the Celtics. It was almost like, hey, we just have to withstand this wave and we'll get back on the board and and you know try and surf it. In game two, that wave came and they packed it up and said, we're leaving the beach. We're, we're, we're tied at one here. We're going to Boston. We're no, we know we got our split. We're happy to go home. And I think if you are in a final series, I always remember the Nick Nurse story talking about Kawhi Leonard. After game two, the Raptors are down, or the Raptors are tied now, um, 1-1, heading to Golden State. And Nick Nurse basically said, hey, we could go to Golden State, get a split. We'll still be in the series 2-2 coming back home. We have home court advantage. And Kawhi Leonard stood up in that locker room and said, no, F it. Let's get two. And they went on the road and did exactly that. And that was the difference in the series to me because they showed no fear in going into Golden State and winning both those games. And obviously the injuries impacted things. But I think it was really showing the confidence that no matter where we play, we could play in Toronto, we can play in Oakland, we can play on Pluto. Doesn't matter what the home court advantage is, we're we're gonna take care of business the way we know how to take care of business. And I think that was a difference in giving the team confidence. I don't know who that person is, Scott for the Celtics because they don't have that championship experience or finals experience. No one's played in the finals before. They're all going through it for the first time together. And I think that right now, maybe not right at this instant, but at some point in the series, someone is going to have to have that moment where their backs are against the wall and you got to go in there and prove to everybody and myself included that, Championship experiences doesn't mean anything if you haven't been there. If you're the better team, you could figure it out. Show the will to win. And I think that's going to happen after game four. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. But I think that's going to happen after – it's going to have to happen after game four. I, I think that's very fair. I, I, look, I think you look back at the both of the previous series that the Celtics have played in, right, against the Bucks and the Heat. There was at least one game in both of those series where I think it's fair to say we were both just kind of like, what are the Celtics doing? Like, why did they give that game away? And then you go to a game seven against a Giannis or Jimmy Butler. Um, you don't want to be in those situations, but I think you doubly can't do that against a healthy Warriors team that's led by Steph Curry. It's fully right. healthy and all that. Um, so the, 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 the finals is just a different stage. And I do wonder if that's going to kind of catch up with them at some point. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, the finals are where legends are made, right? And the Celtics team is absolutely fantastic. But we also talked about it last week with Jason Tatum um, and kind of where he ranks in, in the NBA's best players list. And I kind of said he's in that 8 to 10 range because when he's rolling, um, I mean, he, he looks like a top five player. And I will give him credit. Like when his shot's not falling this season, he, he's done a much better job of, of still, you know, driving, still putting pressure on teams. He's improved as a passer. He's bringing mm-hmm. it defensively. Um, that kind of shows the maturation in his game. But he still has these games where he doesn't shoot particularly well. Um, and Jalen Brown, I mean... The Warriors putting Draymond Green on Jalen Brown in game two, I think, completely changed that game. Because Jalen Brown came out hot. Uh, He had, what, like 10 points early in the first quarter. They switched Draymond Green onto him, and then he struggled the rest of the way. And I think Draymond's just physicality in general changed that game. And I know people are going to talk about, you know, there were some fouls not called that he should have been whistled for. There was that that screen he set that went viral when he looks like a linebacker. Um, And obviously that tie up with Jalen Brown. But... I mean, that, that's kind of like, that's knowing the moment, knowing the situation, right? Having that experience, Draymond Green came out and knew, he played with a sense of urgency and knew what that, how that would impact the game. So, 
I do think experience matters. Like whether or not it matters so much in this series that the Celtics have no chance, I wouldn't go that far. Um, but I, I do think kind of what you were touching on, like the fact that the Warriors have been here so many times and the Celtics haven't, um, I think that showed a little bit in game two. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if it shows up again in the rest of the series. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the series plays out because I, I do think that the pressure now is off of Golden State to respond and back on Boston now with home court advantage uh, in their favor. And I wonder, the Warriors have won at least one road game in a playoff series dating back to before, before Steve Kerr took over as head coach, dating back to the Mark Jackson days. So you'd have to think that they're going to win one game in Boston. And if it's game three, I do think that the Celtics might be in a ton of trouble uh, because they don't want to go down 2-1 in their own building and have a crucial game four um, you know, in front of their fans that, yeah, they'll be rocking. But I talked about it last night uh, with some of our, our teammates. Sometimes having home court advantage can be a disadvantage in the sense that the crowd is so geeked up that you can also feel when momentum shifts and they become nervous. And that nervousness sometimes spills onto the court and affects the players. And if there's going to be a team that gets affected by that in this series, it's going to be the team with the least amount of experience on this stage. So I do think that the Celtics have to be very careful heading into game three. Um, let's talk about adjustments for these two teams. You, you mentioned Draymond Green guarding Jalen Brown. We'll start with the, the Warriors because we, 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 we talked about that a little bit. You talked about that a little bit. I thought that was the the game-changing decision that Steve Kerr made uh, in game two that really shifted the balance of power of that game. I know Steph was great. I know Draymond even played just better. Um, you know, he took his opportunities offensively. He wasn't jacking up shots. He didn't seem rushed. He didn't seem like he was trying to prove a point to the rest of the world that, hey, I can shoot the three, um, which I thought he was doing in game one. And he got into the Celtics' heads. Jalen Brown, um, you know, uncharacteristically played out of, you know, lost his composure once Draymond, you know, was checking him. And Grant Williams as well, I thought, was a non-factor in the game because Draymond Green, he was too busy trying to out Draymond Green in the game. And the mics even picked it up. Draymond Green told Grant Williams, you want to be me. And, and and like comments like that is where I think Green really gets under your skin. And for a team like the Celtics that don't play like that, they they can't fall into that trap that, that Draymond is trying to set for them. Draymond loves playing that type of bat. If you talk to him, he's going to talk back and it's only going to elevate his game. I don't I haven't seen the Celtics, and not to say that these guys are going to get punked in a series, but I haven't seen the Celtics ever jaw at another team in the way that Draymond likes to jaw at opposing teams. So it's not the way that the Celtics want to play. They, they are, they're better off blocking that stuff out and just hooping versus trying to go, you know, word for word with Draymond Green, who is, you know, one of the best in the league, if not, you know, in NBA history at talking junk and backing it up. So, you know, it, that's the tough part for the Celtics. It's easy. It's, it's hard to not fall into that trap. But you, you got to toe that line. You can't have him getting to your head. You, you kind of have to outsmart that part of his game because it is a skill. 
it like it may not show up on the box score, but guess what? It is a skill and it worked to perfection because Grant Williams was a non-factor. Jalen Brown fell off. Um, and and let's face facts, Scott. Draymond Green cannot guard Jalen Brown. He has been allowed to guard him because the refs have swallowed their whistles. In a regular season game, if he guarded him the same way that he guarded Jalen Brown in game two, he would have had three fouls in the first half, potentially four. But the refs aren't going to call those types of fouls in a NBA Finals because we're not here to see, no disrespect to Juan Tosano Anderson, but we're not here to see JTA step on the floor in a Finals game. So they're going to do everything they can to not blow the whistle for the Stars. And quite frankly, I love that style of basketball. Like that, that is right up my alley. It's 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 hand checking. Hand checking's back, right? And they and it only shows up in the finals. Jalen Brown's going to have to play through that and figure out a way to force the refs to make those calls. And I don't think he did that in game two. But I think if you take away the hand check, if the refs start calling those, which could be the case in Boston, Draymond Green's going to see a lot of time sitting on the sideline with foul trouble than he did in game two. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would go as far as saying that Draymond Green can't guard Jalen Brown. I mean, Draymond Green is arguably the best defender in the league right now, right? And he's a guy who he's one of the best defenders we've ever seen in NBA history. A guy who can thrive as a help defender, can protect the rim as a small ball sensor, but can basically just switch onto any position. And I think his length was able to bother Jalen Brown a little bit. And yeah, Jalen Brown has an athleticism advantage on him, but Draymond Green still moves his feet really well. So I almost wonder if that was more like Draymond Green knew he could play with that physicality and get away with it, so he did it. But if he had been whistled for one or two of those fouls, maybe he he tones it down a little bit. But I still think he can give Jalen Brown trouble, like we saw in that game too. Maybe to not the same extent as he did in that game, um, but I, I don't think it's a, a matchup that Jalen Brown is, is, is going to win. I, th- I disagree. I, I think really? that Jalen Brown's very tough of a guard for Jamon Green if he's going to be allowed to be as physical as he was in game two, which I, I hope is the case because I don't want to see a free throw contest. And I also don't want our best players sitting on the bench watching the finals like you and I. I, I hope the refs don't end up blowing the whistle on that. But I think if you're Jalen Brown and if you're Yuma Udoka, you have to say, hey, this guy is being extremely physical on a, on you know one of our star players. Yep. Like you're gonna have to blow the whistle, uh, and it's gonna be it's gonna be tough for the Warriors to play as physical as they did on the road um, than they are at home. So that's just my thought. I again, I think Jalen Brown could. I don't want to say have his way with Draymond Green, but I think he could he could find ways to be successful driving past Draymond because I, I don't know that Draymond has a foot speed anymore. He may have at one time, but anymore to stay in front of a, a Jalen Brown with his quick first step. So. That that's just my opinion on that. So the the one adjustment I do think that the Warriors could make or have to make, um, you know, heading into games three and four, is potentially. I I know that you know the switch putting Jalen, you know, Jalen or Draymond and Jalen worked. I don't think that that could be the recipe for the rest of the series. I think Draymond is probably better off being if you know allowed to roam a little bit more because he he. Jalen made life easier for him to roam in game two because he kind of took him out of the game. But I think at Jalen at his peak and playing at home, he's going to move a lot more. He's going to be willing to shoot a lot more. Um, 
and and Draymond is going to have to stick with him, and he won't be able to roam as much as he would if he was guarding someone else not named Jason Tatum. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think I think Jalen Brown starting off that game so hot is why Draymond Green guarded him, right? Like why they switched him onto him when they did um, to kind of take him out of that game because he was he. I mean, he really set the tone for the Celtics to start that game. So, I. Like you said, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Game Three Draymond Green is starting on like Al Horford, and they see how long that lasts. And if Jalen Brown gets cooking, maybe they make that adjustment again. Mm-hmm. The other part of this, by the way, is like Clay Thompson was guarding Al Horford for most of that game, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. You know, I, I think Jalen Brown had some success over the last couple of games, kind of attacking Clay Thompson. Look, Clay Thompson was one of the best perimeter defenders in the league, but he's had two significant leg injuries, so I don't think it's a surprise that maybe he's lost a little bit of a step on that end of the court, right? And he he struggles to keep up with someone like Jalen Brown, who is a tremendous athlete, very shifty, can pull up from mid-range, doesn't need a ton of space. He, he's pretty big. Um, but Tom, Clay's always been like a good post-defender, right? Like he, he wasn't always the primary defender on LeBron James in those final series. But like when he switched on to him and LeBron used to go at him in the post, like Clay would hold his own. Like he, he's strong, um, he's a smart defender. So his ability to, you know, guard Al Horford without Horford just being able to bulldoze him in the paint. Like, I, I do wonder if they, you know, the Celtics try and take advantage of that matchup more. Um, if they, if Clay's on him more in game three, like he was in game two. Um, but yeah, no, I, I thought it was a great adjustment from Steve Kerr. Very interesting. This is what makes like a playoff series fun, right? Because it feels like almost like the first four or five games of a series between teams like this both sides are just making like these little adjustments and they'll, they'll fine tune things and they'll respond. And then it's really those game sixes and sevens where it's like, sorry, game sixes and sevens where like they've thrown everything they can at each other. And Mm -hmm. now it's just a matter of like, you know, there's no more surprises. Both these teams are rolling the ball out and then let's go. Um, So yeah, that's kind of the ebbs and flows of a series, which makes it really interesting because, you know, we can talk about adjustments all day long. Likelihood is both teams are going to have new adjustments in game three that we weren't kind of seeing or expecting. Jalen Brown shot 49% from the field, 40% from three against the Miami Heat. Do you know what he's shooting right now through two games against the Golden State Warriors? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like 38% from the field, 35 from three or something. He's 38. We'll bump him up. So he's 37.5% from the field, 29 percent from three-point range i wonder if you're not going to guard jalen brown with draymond green i wonder if clay thompson is going to spend more time on jalen brown if they gap him and allow him or entice him to shoot those those threes or entice him to take those longer jump shots as opposed to getting to the bucket and running into help so there was always going to be a time. Jalen Brown's been shooting the lights out. Feels like all year long. He's had a great playoffs. He has. Like, he's taken a lot of heat for the turnovers. Everyone loves to make fun of him for having a loose handle, and and you know that that's fair. Um, he did. He's had had. He's has had some turnover issues. I think he's. I think only Jason Tatum has more total turnovers in his playoffs than Jalen Brown, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Which isn't a good sign. No, not a good sign. But as a scorer, I mean, he, he was huge in that Heat series. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, he's had a good playoffs to this point. But he's going to have to cool down at some point, and it would be a terrible time to cool down in this series. But I'll play the numbers. Again, he he shot 49%, 40% from three against the Heat, 
against the Bucks, 48% from the field, 44% from three-point range. He's been shooting the lights out over the course of these playoffs, and maybe he comes back down to earth. So that's my one adjustment, my two adjustments, rather, for the Dubs heading into game three and playing in Boston. Now, let's talk about the Celtics. I have one adjustment for the Celtics, and it's not really an adjustment. Can you just take care of the basketball? Um, I, I said off the top that I do think that the Celtics are the better team. And you can really trace back most of their losses in this playoffs due to the fact that they just coughed the ball up a ton. We talked about it on this show against the Bucks. We talked about it on this show against the Heat. Uh, and here we are talking about it again. And I don't think that over the next five games, they are going to learn just the value of the basketball because, you know, they haven't proven me otherwise. Like they, they, they really do boot the ball around, and it's a it's not just dead ball turnovers, Scott. It's turnovers where it leads to fast breaks the other end. And I said it off the top in our preview last week that that's somewhat okay when you're playing the Miami Heat and the Bucks because some of those turnovers are turning into Giannis dunks and Jimmy Butler layups. Those are two points. Now they're turning over, they're turning into Steph Curry threes. And that's where you really, really, you know, shoot yourself in the foot in, in that realm. Because for as, you know, the Celtics are really get, giving the Warriors a hard time in the half court defensively. But if you're not going to give your defense a chance to even set up and you're giving some of the best shooters in our game an opportunity to walk into threes, and they're lucky that Clay Thompson, which we'll get to in a little bit, is not shooting well. But in game two, you had wide open looks for Otto Porter. You don't want him to have any confidence. You know that we had uh, a wide open three that I think he missed was was Gary Payton coming back off the elbow injury. But he took that shot, which is a great sign because I know there was speculation about whether or not he would even shoot those um, with the elbow injury. Andrew Wiggins hit some walk walk in threes because they decided to give him that space and he, he was able to cash in. So, you know, in, in game one, Andre Iguodala knocked down some threes. You do not want these t- this any NBA team to walk into open looks from three point range, and if there's only there's going to be a team that's going to take them in transition more than any other team, it's probably the Golden State Warriors. So I really fear that for the Celtics because they do such a terrific job defensively. The last thing you want is to get that team going from three point range when they're already tough to guard in the half court. Eighteen turnovers in game two, that's and awful. that led to thirty three points. The Warriors. We're talking about was it a 19 point game? Look, you're not going to eliminate all turnovers. Turnovers happen every single game, even the best teams against the worst defenses. Like it's just the natural flow of the game. But it's it's the ones that you're talking about. It's the ones when Jason Tatum like drives down the lane, loses the ball, passes it right to Steph Curry, who takes off in the other direction, and it's a three on two um, that are just inexcusable. And and like you said, it's it's been the case for them this entire postseason. Like they just cannot afford to be as careless with, at, with the ball as they are sometimes. Um, and, and it isn't just Tatum and Jalen Brown. I think Marcus Smart had five turnovers in Game Two, and I, I remember a couple of them like off the top of my head. Just just again leading directly to the hands of like Draymond Green or Steph Curry, who are pushing it down the other end of the court, and they're getting a good shot every single time. So that, I, I agree with you that that is a huge point of emphasis for the Celtics moving forward. I'm I'm also in game three beyond. I'm fascinated to see how the Celtics defend Steph Curry's pick and rolls. I, I wrote an article today on Sporting News about how Steph Curry's kind of become a different player in these player in, in these finals. Mm-hmm. So it's a testament to how incredible of a shooter that he is. But Steph Curry's offensive game is is pretty well rounded. Like when you look at the numbers, he he's 
generate some points in pick and rolls, some points in transition, some in isolation, and some off of screens. Like he just does a little bit of everything, and we know how good he is at moving off ball. Um, but as the playoffs have progressed to this point, he's running a lot more pick and rolls, and he's scoring much less off of screens. And he's still, I mean, he moves relentlessly, and we've seen it every single game. It feels like you can pull like two or three plays where two people gravitate towards him, someone's wide open, leads to a three or layup or dunk. Um, but he's really upped his pick and rolls in this series so far. And I think some of that has to do with the Celtics team is so good at switching. And they're just, after that that first quarter in game one, they are so keyed in on him off ball that it makes it really difficult for him to kind of shake loose. I think some of it is that. I also think the fact that like Steph Curry has always been one of the best pick and roll scorers in the league, right? Like he can pull off the dribble. He's got a great handle. He's a good finisher around the basket, despite the fact that he's only like six foot two or whatever. And if you put two on him, I mean, we've seen Steph Curry and Draymond Green pick teams apart four on three um, for years at this point, almost a decade. So there's almost nothing that the Celtics can do, I feel like, that he hasn't seen before in terms of pick and roll defenses and coverages and everything like that. Um, they did throw quite a few different things at him in game two. Sometimes they switched. Sometimes they kind of shaded the defender, the dropping over a little bit more, uh, which freed the roller and everything like that. But I, I do wonder at some point if they start to kind of like trap him, try and get the ball out of his hands, even, you know, how dangerous that can be because it does fuel the four and threes that, that Draymond Green is so good at. Um, but yeah, with the amount of pick and rolls he's running, with how comfortable he looks in those situations. I mean, the numbers kind of jump off the page in terms of how efficient those pick and rolls are. Um, I, I do wonder how the Celtics kind of game plan for it moving forward. How much stock do you put into the Celtics being forced into turnovers versus them giving the rock up? Because they've played now three defenses yep. that were, you know, I, I would call them top 10 defenses in the league, probably even top five. Uh, not looking at the numbers, I'm just talking about being able to you know, guard in different situations, personnel and everything. Because the Bucks forced them in a ton of turnovers. Obviously, the Heat did that. Like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown accounted for 55% of the Celtics' entire team turnovers in that Eastern Conference final series. And we're not yet there. Right now, through two games, they account for 40% of the turnovers. If you add Marcus Smart in there, it's up to 56. The three, your three primary ball handlers are accounting for more than half your turnovers. Not good. But how much stock do you put into, hey, this is something correctable for the Celtics in the sense that these are self-inflicted wounds versus they're just going up against really good defenses and you know they're being forced into these turnovers? Not, not to ride the fence here, but I, I do think it is a little bit of both. right? I, I mean, the, the Warriors, the Celtics had the best defense in the league this season. The Warriors were second. The Heat were fourth, and the Bucks were 14th, but I also think that the Bucks are way better defensively than that number suggests. You know, like Giannis is one of the best defenders in the league. They Drew also, Holiday just towns everyone. Brooke Lopez was also missing yeah. for the a lot of the season, and, you know, he is the anchor of that defense. As much as Giannis is the best defensive player on the team, Brooke Lopez really protects the rim, and that changes everything. So I think if Brooke Lopez, if you went back and looked at the numbers with Brooke Lopez in the lineup versus – um, you know, their season long total, I, I think it would tell a different story. Appreciate you bringing up Brooke Lopez, by the way. But yes, so I, I think, you know, these are three of the best defensive teams in the league that they're going up against. But if you just go back, I mean, you can do it the entire postseason. I, 
you can pick a number of turnovers out in each of these games where they've had a ton that have led to transition opportunities for whoever they're facing that I think you can point to and say, like, this is one they probably could take back. Whether it is Jalen Brown driving just a step too far, like he should have given the ball up sooner. Jason Tatum extending his arms out in an attempt to draw a foul and then losing the ball. Marcus Smart just passing it away, um, missing a cutter with a bad pass. Again, some of those are going to happen within the flow of the game. Like some, sometimes they're unavoidable. But I, I do think if you go back and watch them, there's definitely some that they're sitting down in the film room and saying, like, yeah, we, we, we could have avoided at least this one, this one, and that one. Let's talk about games three and four. Give me one player that needs to have a big game three and four for the Warriors. I mean, all eyes are on Steph, right? If Steph keeps playing the way that he is through the first two games of the series, I think the Warriors are going to be in great position. I think even with that in mind, I'm fascinated to see what version of Clay Thompson they get in the next couple games. He's been pretty up and down in these playoffs, but he's also had some big games when they've needed it. Like he scored 30 or more points in both their closeout games, if I remember correctly, against the Grizzlies and the Mavericks. Um, we, we know, you know, he's comfortable on this stage and everything, but he, he, he was okay in game one, um, but he really struggled in game two. I think, I think he was one for eight from three. If you go back and watch them, pretty much all of them kind of seemed in rhythm, like good clay shots, but it's more like the two point field goals that he settles for sometimes that I think are a little bit more head scratching. And I, I, I just think. I think it's it's kind of encouraging actually that the Warriors are one and one in this series despite Clay not playing particularly well. Um, so it's not like they you know his play can kind of make or break them in this finals. But I do think they are going to need him in at least one of these games in Boston to have a good game um, to steal one and, and regain home, home court advantage. Yeah, it'd be nice if Clay Thompson showed up, or at least if his shots started falling. That changes a lot for the Warriors. Uh, on the Warriors, I, I I had Jordan Poole as my X factor, and mm-hmm. uh, before the series started, and it was more so to do with uh, actually it was it was his offense, but also his defense. And I wondered that you know we saw it in Game One; he wasn't really giving you anything offensively, and basically got played off the floor in Game One because if he's not scoring, then he he just doesn't bring anything else to the table. Game Two that changed; he knocked in two of the biggest momentum shifting threes. Uh, and and really demoralize the Celtics in doing so. So you, you saw really the difference in having his offense versus um, none, nothing at all from him. But I'm going with Andrew Wiggins uh, as the X factor on the road um, for these next two games because I think that Wiggins, if he's going to be guarded by either Al Horford or Robert Williams on on offense, he has the opportunity at least to start the game to keep this, the Warriors in striking distance to allow Steph to find ways to 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 get going because I think on the I think over the next couple of days or the last couple of days, Ime Udoka, the coaching staff, probably figured out a way how to slow Steph down or at least give him a different look that he didn't see in the first two games, and it might take Steph some time to figure that out. And while he's figuring that out, the Warriors are going to have to find some offense from somebody. And I think that somebody could be Andrew Wiggins, just with his energy, his ability to, to tap in, um, you know, offensive rebounds. It doesn't have to be him taking over the game, but it could be hustle points and, you know, getting second chance opportunities for the Warriors. I think him being aggressive offensively will change the entire offense because it now allows Steph, 
because he's he's played his butt off the first two games, but he must be exhausted too because it's a lot of running around. It's a lot. It's a lot of mental mentally draining um, possessions that he has to you know problem solve and figure out. Hey, you know where can I get my spots? It's not just the shot making with him. It, it's a lot that goes into it. So I think if Wiggins could take some of that burden off, and it also will, might allow Clay to ease into things a little bit too, because we do know that he is at least at the back in the game too. He was trying to find a stroke. He was just jacking him up. And if Wiggins can find some offense, if he gives you ten quick points in the first quarter of Game Three, if he gives you eight points in the first quarter of Game Four, that just changes the whole dynamic because the Warriors are going to see a wave of emotion from the Celtics. The Celtics are going to feed off of that. They're likely going to go on a big run, but you can't you can't lose the game in the first quarter if you're the Warriors. You, you have to maintain, and I think Wiggins is the one that could keep them in a flow. I, defense, I, I honestly don't worry too much about him. I think at this point, he's shown enough that we expect him to have a high level of quality defense on this team. So he's going to do his best there. He's going to make life difficult. It's, it's just going to come down to the fact that Tatum's either making shots or he's not. Um, but offensively, I think he could give you a little bit more, especially going on the road where, you know, it, maybe the threes don't fall and he's the only other person that I think could get inside the three point line and score consistently. Um, if he has his mindset to it. So I, I, uh, Andrew Wiggins is my X factor surprise, surprise for games three and four Celtics. Yeah. Uh, who do you have? The Celtics, I mean, look, they, they need Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown to both be better to have a chance in this series. Like, this sure. Warriors team is just so good defensively. They're also so good offensively. Like, the Celtics match up well with them on that end of the court. But if if Jason Tatum is going to continue to kind of... He, he was better in Game 2 scoring-wise, um, but really it was like him hitting threes, right? Everything inside the arc, it felt like he, he couldn't really get going. He even had a couple missed layups mm-hmm. around the basket that I thought... Um, which credit to the Warriors, like they're making him uncomfortable. They're playing physical. They've also got some size down low. Um, but th- 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 I mean, they it's 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 simple to say they need their two stars to be better. I, I am, I mean, the the role players are also going to be incredibly important, right? In that game one, Al Horford, Derek White, they shot the lights out from three, and then in game two, they both kind of came back down to earth. Mm-hmm. If they're hitting those shots, it opens up the court so much more for Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Um, Marcus Smart as well. He had some big shots in game one, was much quieter in game two. Um, I, I don't expect them to kind of shoot as well as they did in game one. I think that was kind of, I mean, Draymond Green talked about it after the game, right? He was like, they're not going to shoot this well again. And that's why the Warriors felt comfortable. Um, but I, I think it's just a combination of those two things. I think they're going to need some more of those threes to drop. And then if they do, maybe that's going to make life a little bit easier on Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown to get going. I think I need to see more from Marcus Smart. He's only through two games averaging 10 points uh, in this series. They need more scoring from him. Defensively, I, I need to see him take a charge. I, we have yet to see that. Um, you know, but these are things that Marcus Smart have, has done you know, throughout the playoffs in his career. Uh, against the Heat, he was averaging close to 17 points per game. and It took a lot of pressure off of Tatum and Brown um, in terms of their scoring output. And I, I think if he's able to do that, and I know that Derek White is playing a lot better and playing more, maybe even getting some of the shots that Smart would have taken. But Smart has to be more of a factor offensively because he's a he's a decent offensive player when he puts his mind to it. And it's not just you know making taking and making shots; you know, that's a given. But it's also you know putting pressure on the rim, which I don't think he's done in the first two games. I don't remember him you know making a, a really a beeline or getting to the paint um, and then kicking it out for a wide open shot. Uh, so that's something that I think he's going to have to find, you know, some success with over the next two games. 
Uh, otherwise, it just makes life easier for a team as good as defensively as the Warriors are. That if they don't have to worry, if Marcus Smart's going to take his his self out of the game, then and they only have to worry about two players rather than three, four. It just makes life so much easier for a really good defense and a defense as intelligent as the Warriors are at hiding certain players because the Warriors are putting a lot of. It's not like every you know spot on the on the roster is a you know defensive juggernaut. We're talking about Draymond Green here and maybe Andrew Wiggins, and then that's it. You know, from from guys that you would say. Hey, uh, you know, would either have potential to make an all defensive team going forward or um, that you would say, hey, these are really good defenders. I, you know, Steph's a good defender. He's not he's not ever going to be on an all defensive team. Clay Thompson, we talked about he's not the same guy anymore. So they're they're really beating you with team defense and smarts. Gary Payton um, second is probably the third there, by the way. That's like, fair. If he's playing, if he played the minutes, he probably would have made an all defensive team this season. He hounds guys on ball and his return actually in game two. We, we talked a little bit about like Andrew Wiggins matching up Jason Tatum. Like Gary Payton the second got at Jason Tatum for a while, and Tatum is big enough to shoot over him, but like he's still able to make life difficult for him when he puts the ball on the floor. Um, maybe we see him on Jalen Brown as well in this series. But yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think it's probably those three. Mm-hmm. Um, not to take away from Kevon Looney as well. He's a great defender. Probably never going to make an all defensive team, but he's a he's good fine. defender. Yeah, he's fine. He's in the he's in the range of like he's not going to hurt hurt you in certain scenarios. But he's he's not. I I wouldn't make him as a plus defender. I think he's at. He's a, just above average um, on, you know, first position because he's not switching out on Jason Tatum and you know that being a comfortable. Matchup. He is though. He, he can switch. He has been. He has been. But I don't think that if that's a you know if they get a a, a, a heavy dose of that, I think the Warriors would be in trouble. Um, same same goes for Jalen Brown. I think you you turn that it that turns into layup city uh, if the Celtics decide they want that. Hey, don't uh, sleep right, on Looney. Like, don't sleep on those switches. I'm not. I'm Moses Maloney. That's what they're calling him. I'm, I'm not sleeping on him. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get our predictions quickly for game three and four. Uh, I have the Celtics winning game three, losing game four. I think we get tied, uh, you know, going back to uh, San Fran with uh, the series tied for game five. And I think that that's going to be really the deciding factor of who wins the series. I think the winner of game five win- goes on to win it. Um, but I, I do think that we'll split here. And reason behind that, Celtics, to me, they've been able to bounce back off losses. They have not lost a game. Uh, they're undefeated after a loss. Uh, and so are the Warriors. So <laughs> both teams are going to make adjustments. Both teams are going to trade baskets. I do think game four, we finally see Clay Thompson find his stroke, and that will be the difference. Game three, I think the Celtics will ride the emotion of the crowd, um, you know, and those and those others will play better. I think we'll see a Marcus Smart dive on the ball. I think we'll see Derek White knock down some threes. I think we'll see even Peyton Pritchard hit a big shot that sends a crowd into a frenzy. And, you know, the Warriors won't have a response for that. But in game four, for whatever reason, whenever the Celtics are, you know, favored, they they kind of they kind of get nervous at that point. Rather than it being the other way around, when their backs are against the wall, they play their best basketball, no pressure on them. Pressure's gonna be on them if they're up two one in game four. And I think the Warriors find a way to tie this thing back up and again be on a great Clay Thompson shooting night. So uh that's my predictions going into game three and four. What do you have? I think it's going to be a split as well. Look, I picked this series to go to seven games. I think these teams are pretty evenly matched. So I think a split. Part of me, like, I, I think game three, I think that, that crowd is going to be rocking, right? Like, this is their first finals game in over a decade. They're going to be ready for the moment. Um, their fans are going to show up. Right. I also wouldn't be surprised if this is one of those situations where Draymond Green comes out physically again, picks up a couple fouls in the first five minutes. He sits, and then the, the Celtics build a little bit of a lead. Um so I, I'm with you. I think game three goes to the Celtics. Game four goes to the Warriors, setting up a pivotal game five 
in uh, in San Francisco. Yeah, should be fun. I uh, hope we're right because I want the series to to get to seven. I really think that we we deserve a seven game series here in the finals and great basketball so far. Even though the scores yep. have looked like blowouts, they they were competitive games throughout. Uh, all right, let's get to the Lakers. Uh, Laker fans, rejoice! You finally have a head coach and Darvin Ham. This is going to be Darvin Ham's first time. As the head man in charge, that is always different. Moving the one seat over or two seats over, being the guy where the buck stops with, being the guy that makes the final call. Uh, and then there's an extra layer of added pressure because you are now coaching a LeBron James-led team. And we know, Scott, that if LeBron James is on the team, you are expected to win a championship. It's championship or bust every season that you have uh, a healthy LeBron James uh, on your roster. Add in the fact that you have Anthony Davis now coming back from injury with a ton to prove. And then you have the Russell Westbrook problem that I guess he made a good case that he would figure out a way to solve. Otherwise, he wouldn't have this job, right? Like if you go into Rob Palenka's office and I know the Warriors or sorry, rather the Lakers are, you know, actively trying to reportedly anyway, trying to trade Russell Westbrook. But if that does not happen. And Russell Westbrook starts the season in L.A. You have to figure out a way to get the most out of him. He, they, you know, Frank Vogel could not do that a year ago. Maybe Darvin Ham figures this out. Where do you sit on the Lakers' uh, hire of Darvin Ham? I mean, the Lakers are just fascinating in general, right? They were the, I think it's fair to say, biggest disappointment in the league this season. Um, they have a ton of work to do this offseason. We'll see what happens with Russell Westbrook. But even just building this team, it's basically Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, and LeBron James on the contract. And they're going to have to just fill in all the spots around them again. So we know what the top three is going to look like on that team, but around them is is kind of too, up in the air. I think, you know, Ham, first opportunity for him. It seems like he has a great reputation around the league. Seems like he's like a no-nonsense kind of coach. He's going to demand a lot from them defensively. He made that pretty clear in his, his opening press conference. And this Lakers team, you know, when they won the championship, were elite on that end of the court, right? Um, and they've kind of fallen off a little bit since then. This season, I think they ranked in the the bottom half of the league. They were like twenty. They were twenty first this season in defensive efficiency, and some of that had to do with the fact that you know Anthony Davis missed a bu- missed a bunch of time. He's their best defender. Um, but I, I do think if this team wants to be competitive next season, they're going to need more of a buy-in on the end of the court. And he also talked a lot about getting more out of Russell Westbrook on the end of the court, which you know Russ was if I remember correctly, kind of build as like this lockdown defender in college, right? Like that's kind of how he entered the NBA, his reputation sure. a little bit. And obviously he's become much more of an offensive-minded player. Since then, he has all the tools to be a good defender, um, but he, you know, he's, he's prone to some kind of lapses on the end of the court and everything like that. So I think if Darvin Ham can figure out a way to unlock him defensively, that would be huge for them. Um, offensively, a lot more question marks. He talked about wanting to play like a four-out, one-in style, which I think is interesting because, you know, the all the talk about Anthony Davis being best suited playing center, he usually plays next to another big. I think that's a stylistic thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think based on Darvin Ham's comments, it seems like the expectation is going to be that he's going to play center moving forward. But even Russell Westbrook's not, you know, he's not he's not a shooter. So how do you make up for that in that system? Darvin Ham's coming from a buck situation where they play um, – Unlike some teams, like they, they'll rotate guys in and out of the dunker spot in terms of spacing, right? Like usually you only see an opposing teams four or five in the dunker spot, but they'll put like Drew Holiday down there. 
um, a lot of their guards. It's basically like first person up the court fills that spot. So I wonder if he'll do something similar with Russell Westbrook and all that. But um, yeah, not, not the easiest first gig, I think is fair to say about Darvin Ham. But I, I'm fascinated to see kind of what he's able to do on this team. I said first-time head coach. He's the first-time head coach in the NBA. Of course, he was uh, the head coach of the New Mexico Thunderbirds of the G League. Um, They are now the Cleveland Charge. Uh, They've moved up to Cleveland and become the Cleveland Charge. Uh, Interesting path for Darvin Ham because this is not his first time on the Lakers coaching staff. While he's the first time to be a head man, he was there on Mike Brown's staff in 2011 uh, which was short-lived. It ended in 2013. Mike Brown only lasted a season and a half, if everyone remembers. But it was it was a uh, kind of a full circle moment for Darvin Ham because when Mike Brown took over that headman job for the Lakers, it was a year removed from them winning the title in 2010, uh, and that was their the second of their back-to-back championship. They beat the Celtics the year after that. Phil Jackson had his last season there. Um, things didn't go as planned. They did not three-peat, obviously. Uh, they got swept out of the playoffs, in fact, by the Dallas Mavericks. And Mike Brown comes in uh, with aging Kobe Bryant on the team. Um, you know, A lot of expectations for a team that probably didn't have the talent there. Um, and they end up getting bounced in the second round of the playoffs to a younger, hungrier Oklahoma City squad. Uh, and that was kind of the beginning of the end for Mike Brown. So Darvin Ham was able to sit pretty much, you know, riding shotgun, watching Mike Brown having to deal with, you know, the expectations of a team that was on the back end, a closing end of a championship window, uh, a team that had an aging superstar um, at that time, probably the best, most popular player in the league in Kobe Bryant. I know LeBron was coming up at that time and, 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 and everything else, but here's, Here's LeBron now, um, the back end of a championship window, if, if it's even open, uh, with the Western Conference, you know, as tough as ever with young teams like Memphis and uh, who knows what the Mavericks look like next season. And um, you still got to deal with the Warriors. You still got to deal with uh, the Phoenix Suns. And, and, the, and the Nuggets getting healthy. The Nuggets I mean. getting healthier. And you have, you know, Darvin Ham, who uh, is going to have to get the best out of this team with you know, aging superstar in LeBron James, uh, aging superstar in Russell Westbrook. Uh, the team's still kind of in flux. Uh, Anthony Davis, his health situation, uh, that's tough. So he, at least Darvin Ham has had opportunities to see things up close because he spent time in L.A., spent time in in, uh, in Atlanta with that Hawks team that kind of, you know, got up and going and followed uh, Mike Boonehoser to Milwaukee, won a championship. So he knows what it takes, right? Like he knows what it takes to get there. Uh, Juan Wen is a former player, um, you know, with the Detroit Pistons, so he knows what it takes. Not always the most talented team, but it's a team that uh, sometimes is is the most cohesive unit that that wins a title. And uh, he's he's living proof that he got that ring in in Detroit without a true superstar, and they were able to beat a very star laden Lakers team to get that done. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a great hire, I think, for for the Lakers out of the candidates that were available. Uh, and we'll see now. Darvin Ham in in, uh, in L.A. with a, a lot of pressure on his shoulders to get things right and right fast. Utah does not have a coach. Quinn Schneider stepped down uh, just a couple days ago. And now, um, you know, I would assume that he would probably take the year off and figure things out unless the Hornets, you know, call him last minute and offer him the job. Um, but there aren't many coaching vac- vacancies in the NBA. Right now, it's the team that he just left and the Hornets. 
um, that do not have a head coach. And, you know, Quinn, who had a you know great year there or great eight years there in Utah, got them to great heights, but they weren't able to ever get over their hump. They never really cracked into the Western Conference finals, never really cracked into they never cracked into the the NBA finals. Um, and, you know, with two superstars in Donovan Mitchell and, and Rudy Gobert, um, a lot is going to be expected of the new coach that steps in there. Um, quickly on the Jazz, what, what do you see with that coaching situation? What type of coach do you think the Jazz need? Because Schneider was an interesting coach. I, I don't know if I could put my finger on whether it was an offensive mind, defensive mind, a motivator. What type of coach do you think the Jazz could benefit from? Well, Tony Jones of The Athletic uh, reported today that there are seven names kind of on the initial list of head coaching possibilities for the Jazz. And the lone former head coach on that list is Terry Stotts. And I, I wouldn't be totally shocked if that's kind of where this goes. It's it's almost a hard question to answer because I feel like this is such a big offseason for the Jazz in terms of what they do with Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. Because like you said, they're both stars. They both had a lot of regular season success and they both had some uh, postseason success. They haven't reached the heights that people expected them to. Um, but it kind of feels like it's ended. The, the road is, is, is ended for them, right? Like yeah. um, Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report reported that the Jazz haven't entertained rival teams' overtures to seal away Donovan Mitchell, who was apparently surprised and disappointed by Snyder's decision to step down. But they have engaged with teams in, in Rudy Gobert discussions. And, you know, the Raptors have been linked to them. So have the Chicago Bulls more recently. So I, I really think depending on what they do there, right? Like if they do trade Rudy Gobert, who do they get back is going to completely transform this team into something new. Um, so it, it's almost a hard question to answer and who would be best for them. But look, Terry Stotts had a ton of success in Portland. They were never, never able to quite get over the hump, kind of like the Jazz have. But they, they had, what, like eight straight seasons going to the playoffs, which was the longest active streak. I think he's a good coach. Um so, yeah, and I don't really know outside of him who else I feel like would be a better Listen, candidate for if, if it's Terry Stotts, I think the Jazz are just going to be treading water. Um, I, we're talking about a guy. I, I understand he had the success in Portland. This is a different situation where we're, we're, we have a situation in a team that is looking to take the next step. And I don't know that Terry Stotts is the guy that is, uh, you know, proven that he is ready to man a team that is going to take the next step. That was the issue. That's why he's not no longer in Portland. It wasn't that they couldn't make the playoffs. It wasn't that they couldn't make, uh, you know, a couple rounds into the playoffs and he even got to the Western Conference Finals and ran into a buzzsaw. So I'm not going to crush him for that because everyone would have lost to that Golden State Warriors team uh, that year or, or the you know, three years that they had Kevin Durant, uh, you know, going at a high level. So I know I, I just don't. The problem with Terry Stotts was is that he was never able to elevate his team uh, to the next level and the next coach in Utah has to elevate the team to the next level. I don't know that it's him. So if, you know, if he gets the job, great, you know, awesome, great job for him. I think the jazz will be in the playoffs. I don't think that they'll make the finals with Terry Stotts as their head man. They need to give, you know, they need to try something else. I, I just don't who, think who is that though. I have no idea who, who that is because I, I just think that you need a new voice there. Same way that, you know, the Boston Celtics took a chance with Ime Udoka and we're able to see the results. I think that that's the sort of what, you know, if you're the Jazz, you kind of have to look at and say, hey, we need a new voice. We need new blood here. We've seen Terry Stotts now coach three different NBA teams, and he wasn't able to get them over the top. It's great that he has experience. Maybe you get him on the staff as an assistant coach, but to be the head man, I don't think he's the, uh, I don't think he's the answer there. 
Um, so I'd be, I would be, uh, if I was a Jazz fan, I personally would be disappointed if Terry Spots is the answer there. Um, Hornets, quickly before we get out of here, have uh, Mike D'Antoni on their shortlist. You wrote about what Mike D'Antoni could do for LaMelo Ball, as he's done for Steve Nash and James Harden. Now, obviously, things will be a little bit different for LaMelo because he's not as good as a shooter as those two guys are, but there's still ways that he can impact LaMelo, who is a, an offensive talent that could turn into a genius the same way those two others were able to turn into under Mike D'Antoni. And let's not forget, Mike D'Antoni had Jeremy Lin going for, for a little while that had the basketball world you know, going crazy. Um, so where do you sit on the is, – is Mike D'Antoni the, the, the right man to, to get the Hornets to where they need to be? Because they fired James Borrego, who I think is a terrific coach and deserves another shot. They fired James B um, because he the, the team wasn't good defensively, and they're also looking to get that next level. Mike D might get you to get next level, but he's not bringing defense. He is Mike Antony to some people, not not Dan Tony. I know this is a bit of a deep cut, but Kendall Marshall also played the best basketball of his career under Mike D'Antoni. <laughs> like he he does have this ability to get the bo- the best out of like primary ball handlers. Right. I, I do think even though Lamelo is a different player from Steve Nash and James Harden. You go back, like people making fun of of the Rockets or Mike D'Antoni for saying, like, we're going to use James Harden like we use Steve Nash. Like, we just hadn't, no one thought James Harden was capable of that. And look what happened. So I think LaBella Ball playing in his up tempo system, playing in more space, I, I think would be fascinating. It could unlock him in ways that we haven't seen yet. I think offensively, I mean, the Hornets were already one of the more fun league pass teams this season, right? I think with Dan Tony kind of pulling the strings, it's kind of like pumping them full of steroids in that regard. Like they really would have the potential to be one of the best offensive teams in the league. You look at his track record, but th- that is the concern if Mike Dan Tony takes over, is that it's it's kind of more of the same thing that they just had. Like maybe they are a little bit better offensively than they were this past season, but are they better defensively? And if they are, how much better defensively are they? Um, it, it's not a huge surprise that there have been some reporting that like Jim Boylan might be um, in the running for like an assistant coach under Dan Tony if he's hired for the Hornets. Jim Boylan has been known as like a defensive-minded coach, so I think having someone like him on that staff would certainly help. Um, but if I'm the Hornets, like I, I think Dan Tony would make this team a lot more fun. I think he would be able to get the most out of Lamelo Ball, who is already a star but has the potential to be, I think, a superstar. Like I don't know if I see him being like maybe a, a top five, ten player in the league. But if he's cracking that top 20, top 15, I think that's a huge victory for them. Um, And I know a lot of times when we look at coaches and we talk about them in this regard, it's kind of like you you talk about it from the perspective of like, can Mike D'Antoni coach the Hornets to a championship one day? When reality is like, it's probably not going to be the coach to do that. But if he can kind of get them to go to that next level and then maybe someone else takes over for him in the next five years or whatever it is, um, I I don't think that's the, the worst outcome. Um, for them so I, I i personally think dan tony would be a good hire look he's been around the league for a long time um i know he he's getting up there in age and everything but he's he's always proven to be kind of an innovative coach a guy who's who's not afraid to kind of go with the times um so i i personally would be fascinated to see kind of what he'd be able to do with that roster um and lamella ball specifically yeah and uh people forget that he actually started um you know halfway through the season in phoenix uh, in the 03-04 campaign, before Steve Nash got there, his point guard was Stefan Marbury. And Marbury had, before he was traded, um, had a, he was leading the team in points and assists, and he was doing everything that you you would want out of a point guard. 
Um, we always talk about just the, you know how how great he's made point guards though, but he's got a lot of you know team or players paid. Um, you know he he uh, Amari Stoudemire won. Um, you know Joe Johnson is another. Uh, yeah, I think he he did you know well with Sean Marion. Uh, Quentin Richardson turned into a, a you know a great catch and shoot three point shooter. Jim Jackson's career was extended. Um, you know playing alongside Mike D'Antoni. I don't know if we know who Leandro Barbosa is if he's not you know you know run up and down the floor with that phoenix team in that offense playing that style of basketball because if you had put him in that era into a system i don't know that you know the the brazilian blur would have been um the brazilian blur like he, he wouldn't have been able to to do that so uh then tony will impact you know um yeah not only lamelo ball but i think he will have an impact on miles bridges if he's able to re- be able to resign his contract here uh, PJ Washington, um, who's heading into a contract year. And then, you know, they have two draft picks in the top 15 that, you know, could turn into some players, uh, you know, under the Mike D'Antoni watch. I'm nervous, though. Jim Boylan with the young team screaming the way he does. We saw that relationship in Chicago. Um, if you want to connect to LaMelo Ball, who does not seem like the type of player that is going to respond to old school coaching. I don't know if, if MJ is going to make the right decision or Mitch is going to make the right decision to bring Jim Bolin on the team. It's, uh, yeah, he's an assistant. It's okay. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, yeah, that's an <laughs> easy way to break the locker room up, uh, having uh, assistants versus the uh, the players. All right, let's get out of here, Scott. we got to run. Um, reminder, if you missed any part of the show, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe sound system. Please rate and review. It helps us out a ton. And we remind you that Wednesday is game three. Friday is game four and we will be back here tuesday 1 p.m eastern time 10 a.m pacific time for scott rafferty i am carlin gay telling you to enjoy the games this week folks we'll see you next week